What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is conductor, composer, arranger, and music educator, Caitlin Beauvais, who works as the director of bands at Diablo Valley College. Caitlin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I don't operate so much in the worlds of conducting and classical music, but I have had the opportunity to attend some really fantastic concerts. I don't think I've ever seen a woman conducting. I'd like to start from the beginning with you. Yeah. At what point did you find yourself passionate about music and like what leads you down a pathway as a young woman toward learning to be a conductor? Yeah, so you are correct when we look at the classical world and also the upper echelons of of music education who is conducting and, and directing these ensembles. It is it is mostly men. Um, and different areas, for instance, choir versus orchestra versus band or new music or opera or Broadway all have kind of different breakdowns of of who you might see up there on the podium. But it is actually a big issue that we're trying to to work on bringing more young women to the podium. But for myself, my background was just being in school band and in elementary school where I was uh, faking playing the flute. I did not really know what I was doing and moved on to middle school, kept at it, um, just was in middle school band at the point was retaught how to play my instrument. And I ended up having such a great time in middle school band that I thought to myself, well, what do I need to do that I don't have to leave this place when when I get too old and move on? And I realized if I was a music educator, uh, I could do this as a career. So I started out my career as a 21-year-old middle school band and orchestra teacher after finishing a degree in music education. And eventually after teaching high school and doing a variety of things over about a decade, I thought uh, that it was time to move on. And I got a doctorate in conducting because I wanted to start working with collegiate musicians, music majors who were going to be going into the field of music and music education because I really wanted to um, instill stronger philosophies of art and community and um, the emotional connection of music into our future musicians and music educators. So I see the through line from your young days on flute to re- having to relearn the instrument. I'm wondering if you can like connect a few more dots in the in the meantime from really getting into flute and falling in love with playing music to like, did you have people in your life who were offering leadership around what it looks like to not only play music and enjoy it, but but be professional in that way? And also, how did that side of things play out in a gendered way? For me, you know, I enjoy playing flute, but it was never my number one passion. I never thought I wanted to be, you know, a professional flute player or be in some major orchestra playing flute. To me, it was always about what a large ensemble, whether that be band or orchestra or choir or jazz, um, what that did for a community, how that shaped a community of young people or, you know, musicians from across um, an age spectrum. Um, And then also the way that a performance of a large ensemble could help bring a community together through, you know, audience and connection. So to me, I use the flute as sort of a tool to get through because you do have to pick an instrument 
to play while you're in college. Um, but I was always going for that role of, hey, I want to be this conductor type person. I want to be the facilitator um, of these community projects, of these organizations that I can um, bring bring more people together for these common causes and help kind of change the world for the better, hopefully, through that. Uh, where gender comes in, you know, is interesting when you think about even what instruments um, students pick or are encouraged to learn right off the bat. Like flute is an instrument that I think for the last hundred years or so uh, tends to lean more girls um, selecting that instrument, although that is changing. And then when you look at, you know, in my field um, of a band specifically, most band directors come from a background of playing trumpet, which is interesting. Most band directors are trumpet players, which um, when you think about it, are often playing like those lead strong melodies in the band. So, um, yeah, so that's interesting, too, because you think about, well, oftentimes uh, it's more boys starting out on trumpet. And so... I was always encouraged throughout. My, my parents were supportive. They didn't really know what I was doing, but they're like, we'll put you in lessons. We'll sign you up for that opportunity. And I was encouraged um, for my intellect, I think, and my work ethic, but not necessarily um, ever encouraged like, hey, you should be a conductor. You should do this. You should do that. So I wasn't necessarily um, pushed to become a conductor. I, I feel like through sheer force of will, um, I had to overcome a few things where people were always trying to put me in more secretarial roles or more organizational roles. I was encouraged to do a, a doctorate in music education, which is more of a research role um, rather than being, you know, I guess that that one, you know, the sole artist on the, the podium kind of working with the rest of the ensemble as the leader. And uh, yeah, it's it's a problem in in most of classical music where where girls and young women aren't necessarily encouraged to pursue that path. Um, but I am part of a, a nonprofit organization that we started during the pandemic called Girls Who Conduct, and we um, work to help mentor young women in these uh, career paths before they're even an option for them, so they can really see some. Um, role models and they can see some mentors and have that positive experience and feedback that they that's something they can do. That's so awesome to try to create that model, a model that you didn't have as a younger girl growing up. And I want to get a little bit deeper into that later, but still first, before we get into it, as a conductor and also as a music educator, you have to be able to understand all sorts of instruments how they work, how to support students in it, but also if you're conducting an orchestra, how they all harmonize together, how they all work musically together. How many instruments do you actually know how to play with some some level of proficiency? That's a great question. Um, going through undergrad, pretty much anyone who is certified to become a music educator, if they're a K-12 instrumental and uh, vocal and general music music educator would have had to learn all the instruments. Now, whether or not you retain that or if you have a talent or skill at it uh, is another question. Um, so yeah, it's usually a good idea for music educators to be pretty solid at at least one instrument in each family. So for instance, flute is my primary uh, woodwind instrument. I'm quite good at trumpet as well. Um, and in fact, I'm pretty good at most of the brass instruments. So trombone, French horn, you know, tuba. Um, and then string instruments usually were 
taught to learn violin. I'm not a good violinist. <laughs> um, and then drums, you need to kind of learn how to play the technique just so you can teach. I will say that uh, an instrument that I've been self-teaching for the last couple of years is the banjo, which is not necessarily an instrument you would associate with classical music. But I do have uh, a little bit of a family tree back in Appalachia a few generations ago. And so that felt like a, to me a way to connect. And also with it being more of a solo instrument, it was something that once again, I could learn in the pandemic without feeling like I was missing something because it does sound so good and complete all alone. I have so many specific follow question, follow-up questions and I might not be able to get into all of them. I know so many trumpet players who say they have to practice every day to really keep their chops up. I'm sure that with your in your role, you can't practice all these instruments every day. Is that something Correct. you try to stay up with? Just uh, some kind of regular practice no. routine? No. Uh-huh. No, I you might you know I'm not performing the, on these instruments in any regular capacity. I, I like to play along with my students or model particular things that we're trying to achieve musically um, during a rehearsal. Every once in a while, if I if I have a student conductor come up to the podium, then I love running back into the the band and and playing one of the instruments um, that I bring you know out of my closet. Um, But for the most part, no, what I spend every day doing is a lot of logistical stuff, preparing music, um, preparing students to play the music, practicing my conducting technique, reviewing videos or recordings, um, score studying. A lot of it is looking at looking at all of the music that everybody's supposed to play together and determining what's the best way we can learn that music and what's the best way I can conduct it to show what needs to be done in the moment, whether that's for rehearsal or the eventual performance. And so for folks who aren't familiar deeply with the worlds of conducting, and you know, we can kind of imagine what it looks like on a stage, what all goes into that particular act? Let's say you choose or are assigned a song for a band that you're conducting. What do you do to bring yourself into the music and express that to your band? That's a great question. So you have kind of some fixed things and then some more interpretive, open, subjective things. The fixed things would be um, the tempo or the speed of the music. Usually would happen in a range, but it's a range that the music is supposed to be performed at based on how the composer wrote it. You'll also have things like time signature, which is whatever time signature the piece was written in is going to dictate the pattern of your conducting, which helps the ensemble when they're watching the conductor, just be reassured that they're on the right beat at the right time. And then in addition to that, all of your subjective qualities of conducting are going to be, well, how do you approach each of these notes? Um, and so you are non-verbally and physically communicating with your arms, with your body, with your face, um, with your breath even, the way you're breathing how you want the music to be played. So for instance, if you want it to be more uh, gentle, light, transparent, thin, delicate, uh, vulnerable, exposed, there are ways you can move your body that will indicate that versus playing the same exact piece of music, but maybe you want it to feel more aggressive or more energized or more forward moving. Um, You can change the way that you dictate those beats as you move through the speed of the music that's fixed um, that will express a totally different feeling, a different style, and then the uh, 
the musicians, hopefully, if they're interpreting what you're giving them, will play in a completely different way. Well, and how much does that have to do with the individual conductor? Say you have a guest conductor come in with a band, but the band does not have a strong relationship with how that conductor expresses things. I think it really does come down to the musician and the musician's ability to interpret a conductor. Um, For the most part, every conductor will bring something slightly different, but again, um, subjectively good. Uh, They can interpret the music in a way that will bring out slight nuances and differences from the ensemble. Um, But if you're talking about getting a conductor up in front of an ensemble of professional musicians, they're going to be able to pick up on those nuances and contribute like really subtle, beautiful differences in a way that, again, another professional conductor standing in front of an elementary school band who has no idea and no training yet how to interpret those conducting movements, you're not going to get quite as much nuance. So it's different. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into the musical selections themselves. There's a lot of classical music from older historical origins, but also more recently that are coming from white men. When you're, say, choosing music for one of your bands, how does this dynamic come up? For me, I tend to program thematically, so I'll select a theme ahead of time, not necessarily having a particular piece of music in mind. And then that theme will help dictate where I go to look for the music. When I am programming, I try to include a variety of music from across the spectrum of eras that music has been composed. For band, we're really only looking at about the last 100, 120, 140 years of history where they were writing music for the kind of bands that are performing today. We can also play transcriptions of more classic literature. So uh, somebody's taken a piece of music for older orchestra and rewrote it for the setting of a band. And so transcriptions are also a great way of creating contrast. Um, But actually where my love really is with modern music and contemporary music where those composers are oftentimes still living and you can create uh, relationships with those composers as you select and uh, rehearse and eventually perform their music. There's opportunities to have the composers come and work with your musicians in a residency or just hop on Zoom and do a quick interview or respond to the musicians playing in your rehearsal setting, even though they might be somewhere else in the world. Um, and in terms of, you know, the this idea of all classical music is written by dead white men or living white men, you know, we have... Um, a huge variety of music being written by folks of all different identities and coming from all different backgrounds, whether that be um, from different ethnicities, races, genders. And so for me, that plays a really important part in my programming as well, making sure that the music that I'm selecting is more representational of uh, the communities that are performing the music and are listening to the music in the audiences. And so I do my very, very best to make sure that No concert I program is representative of a single gender, a single ethnicity, a single nationality or race. So how does that land for people? I'm thinking potentially for students, but also potentially for the public. Some people want to hear the things they know. Some people want to hear the things they're familiar with already. It sounds like you're bringing you're very intentional about bringing in new pieces from a, a more diverse context than 
many conductors or band directors might do that. Do you ever hear blowback or consequences in any context from that? Well, I think, once again, if you're coming at it from a place of programming without that diversity being the main goal of the program, then it's really hard for people to make uh, kind of arguments against it. You do hear an issue where people say, hey, I only want to hear good music. I only want to program quality music. And so to me, as long as I'm selecting repertoire that is good quality, it doesn't matter who the composer was. Um, and to me, that's oftentimes used as an argument to continue programming music from a very particular uh, identity of people that are not necessarily diverse or representative of the, uh, the great swath of people composing music nowadays. Um, so to me, I say there's nothing non-quality about branching out and looking. Um, it's just you have to look a little harder. Most of us my age or older were raised in a world where the only repertoire we were learning and that we were told was quality was music by white men. And so to branch out and start looking at music from other folks, from other demographics, we'll notice a few things. One is that oftentimes when you approach music from a composer who was raised in a very different way than, let's say, an American cisgendered white man, that music is going to sound different. And different doesn't mean lower quality or higher quality. Mm. It does mean mm -hmm. different. And it means it's out of our comfort zone sometimes. So oftentimes that quality argument just really means I'm uncomfortable. I am unfamiliar with how this person is writing or the things that they're writing about. Um, this music may be a little more vulnerable than I'm used to, a little bit more exposed. The textures are different. The harmonies are different. And so that can be scary. And that can make it so that the conductor or the director or the person putting on the program, maybe the musicians, have to work a little harder to get that music up to its performance-ready quality. Um, I noticed that with uh, a group of high schoolers I work with, they were very used to only playing music from the traditional band repertoire before I started working with them. And the first year I took over, I brought my um, philosophy of programming more contemporary work by, by composers of different um, demographics. And I got a little pushback from these high school students because it was something they were unfamiliar with. And so it was a little bit scary for them and it was a little bit vulnerable making. They had to work harder to to make the music sound the way it needed to sound. And so I think bringing your audiences and your musicians along for that journey and helping them to understand, well, why are we programming this? How is this expanding our musicianship? How is this expanding our ear? How is this our expanding our knowledge of, of what music is and can be in the world? I think that's almost as important as just programming it itself. Um, and I also want to ask you about some of your decisions to potentially remove certain things from some songs. I know you have a concert, I believe, coming up on July 4th that I would love for you to let folks know about, but also to talk about this conversation about Dixie. Yes, that's that's a good one. So, uh, yeah, I um, am going to be appearing with the Oakland Municipal Band at Lake Merritt on the 4th of July for their 4th of July concert. Um, and so with it being a 4th of July concert, it's my job to program a variety of music that is especially 
representational of, of what is American music, Americana, uh, a lot of patriotic music. And so as I was developing the program for the 4th of July, I pulled several pieces of music that right off the title and the description, you would think, oh, this is just American patriotic music. There's not going to be maybe anything controversial in here. But then as I was preparing the music, I was noticing quite a few of the pieces had the song Dixie uh, in them, just little snippets or maybe even a larger section. Um, and so for folks who don't know, uh, Dixie, it's a pretty recognizable song. Um, but uh, the full full title of it was I Wish I Was in Dixie. It was written in 1859, um, actually for a minstrelsy show uh, by Bryant's Minstrels of Ohio. And uh, 1859, just a couple years before uh, the Civil War broke out, it was a very popular song. And it's a catchy tune. You can't lie. Like when you hear it, that's, that tune kind of gets stuck in your head which I think is part of why it's endured so long. But essentially, it became the the theme song or the 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 song of the South um, during the Civil War. The North had the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but the South very much used Dixie. And part of it was the lyrics of the song were talking very nostalgically about returning to Dixie. So whether that was, you know, coming back home after the war or then once the war was over and the South lost, thinking back to we wish we had this ideal Dixie um, South back, which we had in the, the pre-antebellum uh, era. And today it is still oftentimes used as uh, an anthem of the Confederacy or uh, an anthem of the South. And so as I noticed it was kind of coming up in a lot of the the music I was selecting, I had to make a choice. Am I going to program this music or am I going to maybe edit those few measures out to to cut that piece out of the the larger medley that I wanted to use. Um, and so to me, programming music for a concert that's representational of America in a city like Oakland with you know slightly over 20% of the city being um, African-American, to me, it's really important that we are not including that music and saying, hey, this is, this is America and this is something to celebrate. And I have gotten a little pushback um, from some folks that are aware of the decision I made saying, you know, well, we should leave the music as it is. We should let it speak for itself. We shouldn't erase art. We shouldn't, you know, decide that the meaning of the music is more important than the music. But for me, you know, if my focus is bringing a community together, then I don't want to be um, creating an environment that feels unsafe or that's erasing particular people's um, experiences and especially struggles and especially some some really horrible uh, time of our history that um, we're trying to move past. I know most of your work at DVC and and in other band contexts is literally putting music in front of people and working on working with them to to play it. I'm wondering if you also take opportunities to have these kinds of conversations with your bands with the students. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in the rehearsal setting, it can be a little tricky because time is limited. But when we make certain decisions about um, the kind of music we're going to play or the programming that's going to develop around the music that's selected, I definitely will um, let my musicians who are both college students and also adult community members, since it is a community college, know the reasoning behind why I selected certain pieces and um, try to educate them on um, 
the the variety of symbology or just meaning behind those pieces. Um, and I've I've come to see too that the more that happens, the more the musicians will connect with the music. They find it more memorable. They find the time together in the rehearsals and the performances are more meaningful. That meaning translates over to the audiences more. So to me, when it's not just music for music's sake, it's all about the meaning behind it and the way that the community can come together. Um, and so that's really important to me to continue doing. Yeah. You're also the founder of two projects specifically intended to support various ways underrepresented composers and conductors are represented. Um, you mentioned Girls Who Conduct. I'm wondering if you can take us a little bit more into that work and also talk about the And We Were Heard project. Yeah, thank you. So Girls Who Conduct was started in 2020 over the pandemic with the idea that, you know, we are into the 21st century and we're still looking at gender issues represented in leadership and music. There's been quite a few different nonprofits and other organizations started over the years to help women conductors um, continue to refine their careers and get out there. For the most part, that is about giving opportunities to folks who are already conducting professionally and pursuing conducting as a career. And we have seen, unfortunately, that the numbers aren't increasing even through those projects and initiatives. So the idea uh, for this project came from um, our main founder, Chao Wen Ting, uh, she is an orchestral com conductor, and her thought was we need to be accessing um, students and musicians at a younger age and letting them know, hey, here's what a path uh, for a career as a conductor could look like. Here are the kind of things you could be doing to prepare while you're still in high school, while you're still in undergrad, which in the United States, you can't major in conducting in school until um, graduate school. So all of these things you can be doing to create a career path for yourself uh, in conducting before you would be necessarily eligible to start that career. And so we've uh, started with a virtual program for 36 um, young women and non-binary musicians uh, where we met with them over six weeks uh, for about 90 minutes each session. We gave them some lessons and instruction about conducting, about career, about leadership about gender issues in music and then gave them lots of time to um, ask questions and um, work with each other to kind of build a cohort and a, a friendship across uh, their peers along with our mentorship and then sent them out in the world. We still hear from lots of them as they are navigating this conducting career path. And we've been rolling that uh, mentorship program out yearly uh, since the pandemic started. We've also done a few conferences and some conducting fellowships for um, more advanced conductors. We also have a one-on-one -on -one mentorship program for early career uh, conductors, and uh, we assign them a more veteran conductor to give them one-on-one -on -one advice. And so we're just trying to build up a network of uh, women and non-binary conductors who are looking for a space where they can thrive, where their gender isn't being called into question. Because oftentimes when we show up to a non-gendered conducting ac uh, activity, whether that's a symposium or a conference or lessons, uh, when we are the gender minority, it becomes apparent that it can hinder us a lot because we are not necessarily thought of as what a conductor is or has been. 
So And We Were Heard is uh, another mostly online organization uh, that I founded back in 2018 when I was in grad school. The idea for this project came from a fight on the internet where folks were, again, doing this <laughs> big um, conversation about what makes quality music and if uh, the composer's demographic plays into how you should be selecting music. A whole lot of folks are saying, yeah, we're looking for music by composers from underrepresented groups, but we're having trouble finding it. If we do find, let's say, a composer's name and a title of a piece they've written, maybe we don't know what that piece sounds like. There's no recording on the internet. Their score isn't available to look at and see if the music is going to be appropriate for the group I'm trying to program for. And so we end up not meeting this goal that we have. So my thought was, well, if the issue is that there are composers out there with music and ensembles that want to play it and they're just not connecting and we can't hear the music ahead of time, let's take care of that problem. So essentially what And We Were Heard is, is it's like a dating service, a matchmaking service for ensembles and composers. So composers will submit a bio and they'll submit their music. We have a panel of um, qualified, experienced um, conductors who vet the music just to make sure it's going to be successful. And in the chances when it's not, we give that composer some helpful feedback to help them make the music um, more successful, whether that's just some editing uh, or engraving issues. And then through the process, we'll then match the piece with an ensemble who's interested in performing it. They perform and record the piece of music um, and they're getting that piece up from the composer for free. And the payment is that they're giving the composer a quality recording of their music or a reference recording that then the composer can use to amplify their voice, promote their music, and get themselves out there. Um, finally, at the end of this, once we have the recording, we create um, promotional material on our website to help get that music out um, to more band directors, orchestra directors, choir directors, anybody who would want to program that piece so they can actually hear it. And they say, oh, wow, I do like that piece of music. That's going to work for my group. I will select this piece of music to play as well. So we've had a lot of success where composers do the initial collaboration with one ensemble, get that piece recorded. And then once the recording exists, it blows up and tons of people start purchasing and performing that piece of music. And it helps the composer out uh, with their career. And we have more diversity uh, in our programs and our concerts. Is there are there any particular pieces that you'd like to shout out, give listeners an opportunity to to check out that have gone through the and we were heard program? Ooh, that's a good question. One piece that I think uh, has done an amazing um, life so far over the last year is Matthew Campbell's um, "A Thousand Inner Voices." Matthew Campbell is uh, a composer of a Latinx background from Texas. And he wrote this piece actually um, to support And We Were Heard. So when he wrote this piece, uh, he wrote it as a, a fundraiser. So anyone who purchased the the piece, the, the purchase um, fee would go as a donation uh, to our nonprofit, And We Were Heard. And the A Thousand Inner Voices piece is a really incredible uh, piece of music. And he focused on the, the thousand inner voices uh, telling him to doubt his talents and his skills to doubt his work to doubt whether or not he was going to be able to make it as a composer and so it goes through this um, process of kind of feeling anxiety to then hope 
um, cutting through. And uh, so it's kind of a meta piece, if you will. But um, it's it's a really enjoyable piece to play and to listen to. And it's um, been quite popular over the last year. And uh, recordings of it have been made. They're on available on our website. And uh, Matt Campbell's career, if you look back on it, has definitely had a little spike um, since that piece came out. And so we're really proud of him and also super grateful that he wrote the piece as a uh, fundraiser for our organization. That's awesome. I'm I'm really excited about the work that and we were heard is doing. We are totally over time, but I want to end with one last question. Yeah. Might catch you a little bit off guard. Um because I I want to ask about joy in music. There's all kind of technical elements to learn and internalize in order to become a musician, to become a conductor, to do the work that you do. But a lot of the reason that we gravitate toward music as a musician or as a fan is because it brings like a creative and positive energy. I don't know that I have exactly the right question here, but I wanted to prompt you and see how it lands. What's the role of joy in your work as a conductor, musician, educator, and also as a music listener? That's a great question. I think it's important uh, as someone who programs music to program a piece of music that's going to hit your musicians in a sweet spot where it's not too easy that they can just read it right off the bat. It's not too hard that it's never accessible, but it's someplace where they can work. And through that work and through that process of learning the piece and coming together on it, they're feeling successful. They're feeling excited. They're feeling the energy and the motivation and the intentionality that it takes to get that piece prepared. I also think that once again, what the piece is about can really play into it. And so being able to create that emotional impact through the piece and have it relate to the audience. Um, and for me personally, I don't know, I just get so excited that I get to do what I do for a living and wake up every day and work with musicians and help facilitate their successes and these performances that we give to our audience um, that I know that's a bit infectious too. So being able to bring that um, and relay that to my musicians and my audiences is a great way of them being able to connect with the music further. So when I'm excited about it, I know a lot of other people um, also have the opportunity to get excited about it. And so I just encourage people to, to know what that feels like to them. What's the music that gets you excited and go seek more of that, especially in live settings, going and supporting live music um, and being there in that space and f doing that feedback loop and that energy loop is just something that you can't ever recreate in any other setting. And um, yeah, I hope we keep valuing that as we move further into the 21st century. I think that leaving it there on a note of the infectiousness of excitement is awesome. And we do have to leave it there. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to Lawn Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and this has been Resistance in Residence with this week's featured artist, conductor, composer, arranger, and music educator, Caitlin Beauvais, who works as the director of bands at Diablo Valley College. You've been listening to Lawn Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Lawn Disorders produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.